Let's pray together. Father, we stand and sit uh, reverently under your word. We give you thanks that you've given it to us. We thank you for all the truths that are waiting there for us to mine. And we pray that by your spirit that you would help us to dig them out and see them and see you as a treasure. We pray that you would give us wisdom for life today. We thank you for the grace that's exhibited even in this passage. And we pray that you would help us to see it and experience it and leave here happier and holier. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the passage we're in today, Acts 15, beginning at 36, that's the passage we're looking at, so you can turn your Bibles and leave them open there. That marks the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. Remember, Acts began with a promise from Jesus before he went up to heaven that his gospel would advance from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now we are in this section of Acts where we are pressing towards that last phase, pressing towards the ends of the earth. And in fact, in this next section, beginning here at 36 and going forward, we're going to see the gospel of Jesus break new ground for the first time ever onto the continent of Europe. So if you've been following Acts with us, it sort of leaked into Africa already through the Ethiopian eunuch. It's spread to some parts of Asia through Paul's first missionary trip. Now from 15 on, it's going to break ground for the very first time onto the continent of Europe. And so from this section on, you're going to hear the names of brand new cities. You'll hear the names of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. And from this moment on, you're going to hear the names of new teammates as well. It won't just be Paul, there'll be Silas and Timothy. But as you hear these new names of cities and new names of people, there's one name that from this moment on is going to go missing. And it's going to be the name that we hear the most. And that is the name Barnabas. Because from this passage on, you won't hear the name Barnabas mentioned again in the entire book of Acts. And that's because in this passage, Paul and Barnabas break up. They split. They part ways. Or as the title to your black Bible says, Paul and Barnabas separate. Now, if you've been following the story with us, any sign of a great story is you find yourself invested in these characters. You find yourself affected by these characters. And if you've been tracking in this story, you're going to be affected by the thought that Paul and Barnabas, who till this point in the story had been two peas in a pod, it had been Batman and Robin, it had been Jordan and Pippin, it had been Ben and Jerry, that these two are now going to rift And they're going to part ways, so much so that Barnabas is going to disappear from the book of Acts. So here's what we want to do. We want to listen to what happens and then try to draw some lessons as we both lament and learn from this conflict. Okay? It starts in verse 36. We'll read from 36 to 39. Here's what happens. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. All right, let's pause there. 
Luke, who's been writing this story for us, writing this history, this account for us, tells us that Paul and Barnabas here get into such a sharp disagreement over one called John or one named Mark, right? There's this fight over Mark. Now, the question that comes to us is, who's Mark? Who are they fighting about? Now, Mark shows up earlier in the New Testament. In fact, the first probable scene where he's introduced, it may be, some scholars believe, you know the account, if you remember through the New Testament, where Jesus is getting arrested in the garden. If you remember that story, all of Jesus' followers run. And there's this one very curious two verses about one young disciple who runs, and in fact runs with such haste that they grab his cloak, and he leaves it behind, and he runs from the garden naked. Many scholars believe that's Mark, right? So when you see Mark, think running from Jesus in the garden naked, that's Mark. And that Mark is the one we're talking about here. Other parts of the New Testament tell us this is Barnabas' cousin. And so he's been around Jesus. He's been around the ministry. In fact, his mother Mary's house is where they were praying the night that Peter was in jail. Do you remember they had the prayer meeting and Peter knocked on the door and no one could believe it? That was Mark's house. He'd been around Jesus. He'd been around believers before. And then we, introduce, we meet him in Acts 13. One chapter prior, this is when the church at Antioch was sending Paul and Barnabas out. Verse 5 of 13 tells us they also sent Mark with them as an assistant. And then we get this one curious verse in chapter 13. It's verse 13. You can just look at it with me one page before. 13 verse 13, very little comment, just one fact. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Luke doesn't tell us much more. He doesn't tell why John left, but just that John left. John left, left them in Pamphylia. John, or this person Mark, abandoned the mission. When I, when I think of Mark, there's this character in the book Silence. It, recently, Martin Scorsese made it into a movie called Silence. There's this Japanese convert named Kichijiro, and he's this convert who wants to be a disciple, but every time trouble comes, he runs. And so every time he's trying, but he's a coward, and he's sniveling, and he's, and, he's, and he's always bailing, and he's fleeing, and he's running away. That's Mark. Picture the guy running from Jesus in the garden, running away on this missions trip. That's who this Mark is. And now, when we get to 1536, about a year, maybe two, maybe three has passed. Paul and Barnabas have wrapped up that missionary journey, their home in Antioch. They've just finished the Gentile controversy about circumcision that you heard last week. And now they're preaching and teaching back at their sending church. And while they're there, Paul turns to Barnabas. And he has what I imagine a conversation that sounds like this. Paul says, Barnabas, aren't you dying to find out how our brothers in Pisidia are doing? And not just Pisidia, but Iconium and Lystra and Derby, where we planted those baby churches. I mean, it's been a whole year or two since we've seen them. They're just baby Christians, baby churches. Aren't you dying to find out how they're doing? We have to go back and see how they are. And Barnabas responds by saying, brother, that is a great idea. Let me just pack my bags. We'll load up the minivan. I'll grab Mark and we'll be on our way. And I imagine Paul says, he chuckles and he goes, yeah, good one, Mark. Just grab your stuff, let's go get the minivan, and let's go. 
And that's where I imagine the conversation turns. And Barnabas perhaps pauses and says, wait, why are you laughing? What do you mean? You don't want Mark to come with us? And then Paul says something like, wait, I I hope you're kidding. I can't tell if you're kidding or not. There is no way Mark is coming with us. Barnabas, do you remember? I don't need to tell you. I know he's your cousin and all, but you remember that that boy left us last time in Pamphylia. We are not taking this boy with us. There is no chance that we're having him desert us again, go AWOL again. There's no chance I'm doing that. And you can imagine Barnabas saying back, no chance. Paul, that's exactly what the boy needs, just another chance. Just like you needed another chance, and I need another chance, and God's people always need second chances. That's exactly what he needs. And Paul would say something back like, listen, Barnabas, this isn't about you or me or Mark. This is about the mission, the ministry. We're going to frontier evangelism. We're telling people about Jesus. They stone us. They run us out of town. That's not for a young, unproven disciple like Mark. And you can imagine Barnabas coming back and saying, Paul, I do not care what you say. I am not going without Mark. To which Paul says, well, I'm not going with Mark. And you can hear this going back and forth until 39 says, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. The phrase there for sharp disagreement is this phrase for anger, irritation, exasperation in a disagreement. Such a sharp, deep disagreement that these two pastors, these two church planters, these two veterans in ministry, these two mature believers, these two brothers, these two friends who have a relationship that has gone back 15 years, part. And we never hear of them joining back again. Part in such a way that you won't hear Barnabas mentioned in the story one more time. I mean, you think of this again, if you've been following the story, you're affected by this. This is Barnabas. Barnabas, who we met in Acts 4. Do you remember back in Acts 4 when people were selling their property and fake Ananias and fake Sapphira were jealous because Barnabas did that with a sincere heart? They were hypocrites. Barnabas, who came and laid all his property and the the money from it at the apostles' feet, and they knew Barnabas was a son of encouragement. Or the Paul and Barnabas from Acts 9, when Saul got converted and no one wanted to touch Saul of Tarsus, the Christian killer with a 10-foot pole, who went and vouched for him? But Barnabas. Barnabas brought him before the apostles and said, brothers, I know nobody wants to go near this guy. Jesus really did something to him. Or in Acts 11, when Jerusalem found out that the word of God had touched down in Antioch in Syria and they needed to send somebody to make sure that everything was okay, who did they send? Barnabas. And Barnabas got there and just through his encouragement, exhortation, the church multiplied and grew. And when it grew, Barnabas didn't sit and go, all of you should now stare at me. He said, I need help. So he went over and got one Saul of Tarsus. And he recruited Saul of Tarsus and said, brother, you got a co-pastor with me, this church in Antioch. And you imagine, they pastored that church together. Don't gloss over that, because I can tell you, just in working for now seven, eight years, nine years, almost ten years with Sibi and Binu, I can tell you, when you pastor together, there are hours of unseen things you know nothing of. You, you don't know the conversations 
the shoulder to shoulder, the arm in arm, how many prayers, how many tears, how many strategies, how many sessions, how many plans together. Paul and Barnabas labored together for 15 years, 15 years of ministry. And from this moment on, they will part ways so that you won't hear the name of the son of encouragement ever again. In fact, this is what happens, 39. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, what are we to learn from this conflict? And I want to suggest for you four quickly takeaways, lessons, implications from this that we can learn. Four things for us to learn from this passage. Here's the first. The first is, even our spiritual heroes are just weak human beings. I think the first thing that we can learn from this passage is that even our spiritual heroes, even the giants, have feet of clay. They're just weak human beings. You remember just a chapter ago, Paul and Barnabas had been in Lystra, and everybody wanted to worship them, and what did they shout to the crowd? Why do you want to worship us? We are just human beings with a nature just like yours. And do you not so evidently see they were right? They were right to say, don't worship us, don't idolize us, don't put us on a pedestal too high, because at the end of the day, we are just men with feet of dust like you. We are just like you with a nature just like yours. And is that not evident now in this passage? A 15-year partnership thrown away in one fight. Gone forever. I mean, you think of just the list of characters in this passage. You think of the characters listed here. Mark. Do you picture him in your head? Running away from Jesus in that garden naked. Running away, deserting Paul and Barnabas on the mission. Unreliable, immature, no follow through, a lot of talk, but nothing to back it up. That's Mark. Or then you think of Barnabas, the son of encouragement the one who believed in Paul, the one who sold all his possessions. Barnabas surely is above reproach and and has no flaws or faults. Except that there's this other passage. Luke doesn't mention it here, but Paul does in Galatians. I'll just tell you quickly. In Galatians, there's this scene where Peter comes from Jerusalem to visit the Gentile Christians in Antioch. When he does, Paul and Peter have a confrontation. If you remember that story, Peter shrinks back. I'll just read the text so that you know it. Paul confronts him, but then listen for the other name here. This is Galatians 2. You can just hear it. It says, but when Cephas, that's a name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, listen to this, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, and then catch this, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I don't know about you, but I I forgot about that detail. I remember the story that Peter and Paul got into it, that Peter was sitting there, he's enjoying pork sandwiches, and then the Jews come, and they look at him funny, and so he shrinks back. And Paul has to call him out and say, you're out of step with the gospel now. But there's this curious detail. Even Barnabas was led astray in that hypocrisy. And I was struck by the thought, this happened in Antioch, where Barnabas was a pastor. 
Do you know what that means? Barnabas had rubbed shoulders with these people for years, had been in table fellowship with them for a long time. All of a sudden, Peter comes back, and now these people that he's been in friendship with for so long, he pretends he has nothing to do with them. I mean, that happened to Barnabas. Here's the point. Whether you're talking about Mark, or whether you're talking about Peter, or whether you're talking about Barnabas, or whether you're talking about Paul, they are all just human beings like the rest of us. Normal people made of dust just like the rest of us. That means just like the rest of us, they get into arguments, and they lost their cool, and they see things differently, and they can't see the other person's point of view, and they stick to their guns, and they dig in their heels, and they argue, and they hurt one another, and they make a mess, and they sin, because like all of us, they too are sinners. This is the news of Christianity. Not even the greatest giant or the weakest man is anything but a sinner. That's what we are, all of us, sinners. And so one takeaway for you is do not idolize men. Any man, not your leaders, not your pastors, not Christian people that are famous and that you see on TV, you can admire them, you can respect them, you can learn from them, you can hold them in high regard and esteem them greatly, but you ought not idolize anyone for We are all just human beings. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that the Bible never hides the warts and flaws and failures of any of its characters. So that the Bible literally has one hero, Jesus Christ, and no one else. Everyone else is fallible. Everyone else messes up. This passage shows us that even our greatest heroes are just weak men. But second, the passage shows us that our weakness serves to show off God's grace. We are weak, and yet our weakness serves to show off God's grace. Here's what this passage shows us. This passage shows us that God's got a world with nothing but crooked sticks, and yet this God somehow finds a way to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. The whole world is literally filled with nothing but bent up crooked sticks. And yet God finds a way to draw straight lines with them. Yes, Paul and Barnabas and Mark and Peter are all weak. They're just human beings like you and me. And yet, do you not know how greatly our great God uses them? And it magnifies how strong he is because he can use weak men like this. If you keep reading in the New Testament, we get this clue that Paul and Barnabas actually healed. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul will, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul will reference ministry and he'll say, is it just Barnabas and me? And he'll reference them as a co-laborer. Things got healed between them. But more than just Barnabas, I want you to consider for a moment, do you know what happens with Mark? Runaway naked Mark, deserter Mark, coward Mark, no follow through Mark. Do you know what happens with him? He goes on this missionary trip with Barnabas. And sometime thereafter, he ends up connecting with Peter. So much so that when Peter's finishing his first letter, 1 Peter 5, he closes it by saying, and I send you greetings also from Mark, my dear son. Could you imagine when Peter and Mark got together and Peter looks at this young disciple and says, you bailed on Jesus? I know a little something about that. And he takes this boy under his wing and he says, come, let's do ministry. And, and do you know that moreover than that, this same Mark is the one who writes the gospel penned by his name. 
In fact, it's the very first gospel account that Matthew and Luke look to when they're writing their own gospels. And Peter's voice can be heard in the gospel according to Mark. It's this failure, this kichijiro, this running naked, deserting, AWOL man that God chose to write the first account of his son, Jesus Christ. And more than that, not only does he therefore become useful to ministry, you know who he becomes useful to ministry for? When Paul, who wanted nothing to do with Mark, I ain't coming with you if you're bringing Mark. Get that boy away from me, Mark. Paul writes 2 Timothy. He's coming to the end of his life. This is the passage where he says, I've run the good race. I've fought the good fight. I'm ready to meet Jesus. In that, when he's closing out, do you know what he says? 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, he says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that the God that we serve? A God who did not sideline and bench Mark forever, but redeemed this scared, weak, useless boy and made him useful to the point that when Paul was dying, he called out, make sure you grab Mark, because that brother is useful for me in ministry. Have you ever failed? Do you know anything about wimping out when God called you to do something? Do you know anything about making such a mess of your life that you feel totally disqualified? Like you should sit the sideline and wait on the bench until Jesus comes back. If you know anything like that, then the gospel of Jesus' free grace to sinners is he can redeem and reuse John Marks like me and John Marks like you. I have read a quote from Charles Spurgeon in this church probably 10 times. I'm going, my plan is to read it once a year because I love this quote. It so deeply resonates with me. It is the only reason I can think of why I'm here speaking about Jesus in front of people. Charles Spurgeon said this, right? Listen to this quote. I have always felt in my own mind that it was one of the clearest proofs that I had God's forgiveness of my many sins when I was trusted to preach the gospel. I should think that if a prodigal came back to his father, the old gentleman would kiss him and receive him and rejoice greatly over him. But the next Saturday, the market day, the old gentleman would say, I cannot send young William to market. That would be putting temptation in his way. Here, John, you have always been with me. Go to market and buy and sell for me, for all that I have is thine. William, you stay at home with me. He might not let him see all that he meant, but he would say to himself, dear boy, he is hardly fit for that great trust. I love him, but still I hardly dare trust him as much as that. But see what my Lord did with me. When I came home to him as a poor prodigal, he said, here is my gospel. I will entrust it with you. Go and preach it. You hear what Spurgeon's saying? Spurgeon's saying it's one thing for Jesus to have forgiven us and sat us on the bench and said, wait here till I get back. Just don't mess up anymore. It's another for him to forgive us and then say, no, 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 I'm putting you in the field and here is the most priceless thing I have. The good news of my son, now I'm trusting you to go and preach it. I mean, it's, it's, the God, it's God's grace that is highlighted in the weakness of Mark 
and Barnabas and Peter and Paul. It's to flawed people like us that he entrusts the gospel and says, go do ministry. So yes, even our greats are weak, but God's greatness is shown off in our weakness. Third, on this side of glory, conflict is to be expected even among the most spiritually mature. I think what this passage teaches us is that on this side of eternity, on this side of heaven, conflict is to be expected even among the most spiritually mature. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this story the first time, here's the question that I immediately want to know. Which guy was right? Right? Isn't that what you want to know? Right. They parted after 15 years. They couldn't work this thing out. But which guy was right? So who was the one? I mean, I almost am tempted to ask, how many of you think Paul was right, right? Or how many of you go, Barnabas was right? And if we took a straw poll, I wonder what we'd see. Because on the one hand, can't you see what Paul is saying? I mean, can't you hear Paul saying to Barnabas, listen, Barnabas, I don't hate Mark. I'm not even saying that Mark's not a Christian. But here's what I'm saying. What Mark needs is discipleship. And so, pair him up with a mentor, but don't send him out as a missionary. He's not ready for that. There's more at stake here than just his personal growth and development. We're bringing the gospel to unreached people groups. We get stoned on these trips. We get driven out of cities on these trips. We get persecuted and run out of town. It does not make sense to bring such a young, unproven leader who, by the way, has a track record for bailing on us. So I don't hate your cousin. I don't think he's not a Christian. I'm just saying he's not fit right now for this work. I mean, can't you see some merit to what Paul's saying? This is why missionary agencies don't just ask you, do you love Jesus? Okay, we'll send you to Iraq. That doesn't work because they go, tell us about your story. Tell us about your giftings. Tell us about your track record. Tell us about your competency. Because if we're going to send you to frontline work like that, it matters. Right? And, and if you've got a track record where you're not qualified for this kind of leadership, this is what Paul's saying. I'm not hating on this guy. I'm just saying his shoulders are not broad enough for this work God has called us to. Can't you see what Paul is saying? And yet on the other hand, can't you see what Barnabas is saying? That Barnabas would say, Paul, I can't believe that you, of all people, can't see that Mark just needs another chance. You, of all people, should know that our God is a God of second chances and that your past need not disqualify you from future work. You, of all people, should know when no one counted you fit for ministry, I took a gamble, a risk, a chance on you. And we're having this conversation precisely because I was willing to have that chance. And listen, that's what this boy Mark needs. And can't you hear Barnabas saying, listen, Paul, I can see something in him. God's going to do something with this kid. God's not going to bench him forever. I can see that there's potential in him. All he needs is somebody to give him another chance. And I'm positive God's going to do great things with him. So can't you see what Barnabas is saying? So then which is it? One's emphasis is on the mission and ministry and the holiness of God and the seriousness of his call. One's emphasis is on the man and the seriousness of God's mercy. So which is it? This is why I think it's great that Luke doesn't say anything. Luke simply reports it to us, and he does not tell us, and so-and-so was right, and so-and-so was wrong, or so-and-so was wrong, and so-and-so was right. You simply read the narrative and are left to conclude you have two good men 
who can't agree, and a sad disagreement that tears them apart so deep that they part ways. And I simply want you to hear, even as mature believers, in this broken, fallen world, we are not immune from conflict either. And that it should be expected. And often, I want you to even hear, that conflict, so much of conflict, particularly among Christians, is not about black and white sin or not issues. Instead, it's often matters of perspective, philosophies, points of view, personality, strategies, judgment calls. In fact, listen to a quote by an old Puritan named Matthew Henry. He says this, Even those that are united to one and the same Jesus and sanctified by one and the same Spirit have different apprehensions, different opinions, different views, and different sentiments in points of prudence, that is, wisdom, judgment calls. It will be so while we are in this state of darkness and imperfection, we shall never be all of a mind till we come to heaven where light and love are perfect. You know what he's saying? He's saying rightly, on this side of glory, there will be fractures. On this side of glory, there will be friction. There will be conflict. That's just a reality of life in this broken world, even among mature believers. And I simply want to add, but that being the case, doesn't it make you long just a little bit more for glory, for the world to come? Doesn't it make you long a little bit more for the day when all disputes will be healed, when all all divisions will be united, when all fractures will be joined, and all relationships will be restored, and every secondary theological thing that Christians argue about will finally be done. I can't wait. I, I already picture in my head the day is going to be there in glory when the people who baptize their babies and the people who baptize believers, they get together. And they're like, all right, Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. Tell us. All right? And Jesus is finally going to say, and the right side was. And, and they're going to be fine. They're going to be together. Or, or can't you imagine, I picture in my head, Paul and Barnabas in glory. Can't you picture Paul going up to Barnabas and going, so do you think we should have still took Mark? Right? I mean, by the way, Luke didn't mention you even one more time after that story. So who do you think Luke thought was right? Right? Or, or Barnabas saying, you're right, we shouldn't have took him. He only went on to write the second gospel. You're right, what a bum, right? We should have totally left him behind. But can't you see all these things healed? And won't it be glorious that all of our relationships and all of our frictions and all the fractures will be gone? And there truly will be one church in Jesus. Until glory comes, I want to suggest it's actually a good thing that we have Paul's and Barnabas's. Aren't you glad there are people who stand for the truth and won't get swayed even when the Jewish party comes and, and they won't compromise because the truth matters? And aren't you glad that there are people that, that care about people so much that they're willing to give second chances? Aren't you glad for Paul's and Barnabas's? Let me read you a quote from John Piper. He says it beautifully here. He says, Is it not a beautiful and encouraging thing that at the beginning of Paul's Christian life, when no one would take a risk on his behalf, Barnabas came forward and saved him for the cause of Christ. But many years later, when Barnabas was falling away from the truth, Paul came forward and saved him for the cause of Christ. These men needed each other's different strengths. We are better, brothers and sisters, for our different perspectives and personalities and points of view. 
until glory comes and heals us of all of our divisions, we'll trust that the Lord will work in and through them. And that's the last thing. Fourth and finally, even in conflict, God's gospel will advance. Even in conflict, God's gospel will advance. In fact, that, I think, is what Luke wants you to walk away from this passage knowing more than anything else. For the sake of time, I won't read the second half, but 16, 1 through 5, tells you that after Barnabas and Mark sail off to Cyprus, Paul grabs a guy named Silas, and they head back to the cities they had visited before, and then in 16, 1 through 5, Paul recruits another young disciple named Timothy. And man, now you've got more disciples that will go on to have serious and significant ministries. He grabs Timothy, and there's the story there in 1 to 5, but here's the point. In the sovereignty of God, out of this disagreement comes what? Two teams doubling the labor in two places. Before the trouble, you have two men, Paul and Barnabas, on the same team going to one place. When the argument's done, you have five men now, Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Mark, going in two teams to two different places. From one team in one place to two teams in two places, the gospel now spreads further, faster, and wider before, so much so that Paul can end 16.5 and finish that entire section with the same kind of summary report he said over and over in Acts so far. And the churches were strengthened, and they increased in number every day. There it goes. What's, what's that? The gospel keeps marching on. More converts, more strong churches, even conflict didn't tear that apart. That's what Acts has been showing us, right? Whether it be persecution from without, hypocrisy from within, or conflict with each other, nothing but nothing has been able to stop the advance of Jesus' good news. So here's what we see in this passage. We are weak, every single one of us. But God, using us despite our weakness, shows off his grace and strength. Until glory comes, we will have conflict. But thanks be to God, at the end of the day, he will still his advance his gospel even through our conflict. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we give you thanks that you have told us honestly in your word the way we are, the way things are, the way you are. We pray that we would be instructed and wiser for this time together. We pray that we would pursue healing in the places where we're wounded and trust you in the places where healing has not yet fully come. We pray that you would help us to know that you will be victorious over and in and through everything that we face. Help us to go from here today in that confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.